Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by longtime Washington Post columnist and Pulitzer Prize winner, George Will. He's also one half of the debate team, along with British parliamentarian Jacob Rees-Mogg, in the latest Monk debate, centered on the resolution, be it resolved, liberalism gets the big questions right. I was grateful to speak with George on the afternoon of the debate about some of its key topics, what it means to be a North American conservative, the state of Republican politics, and of course, baseball. The next voice we'll hear is mine in conversation with Washington Post columnist, George Will. You're in, here in Toronto to debate about classical liberalism. Um, you've made the case in different places over the years that the job of an American conservative, and I'd argue a Canadian conservative, is to essentially conserve liberalism. The point being that our founding institutions are shot through with liberal ideas and values and that conservatism's role in our political context is to conserve that inheritance. Talk about what it means for North American conservatism to conserve liberalism and how that distinguishes us from conservatives elsewhere in the world. European conservatism, when it boarded the ships and crossed the Atlantic, shed a lot of what made it European conservatism. In the phrase American conservatism or the phrase classical liberalism, the adjective classical and the adjective American do a lot of work. Yeah. European conservatism was born in defense of stasis and hierarchy. Blood and soil, throne and altar, stained glass minds of conservatives. Uh, in North America, it's very different. Americans welcome the churning that dissolves natural hierarchies. They welcome the fluidity of, of life and the uncertainty, the lack of tidiness and control, certainly the lack of ranks, the lack of all natural hierarchies. Classical liberalism wants a hierarchy, but a hierarchy of meritocracy. One determined that is careers open to talents and talents evenly distributed through society. So North American uh, conservatives, I know our terminological confusion is, is it's too late to that ship has sailed. But uh, conservatives are classic liberals. Uh, I want to stay on the subject of liberalism. One of the questions that many of us are grappling with in the face of current protests and rallies in our countries in response to Hamas's attacks on Israel and Israel's subsequent military campaign is about the possible limits of liberalism and pluralism. A former boss of mine used to say, uh, George, that our list of freedoms cannot become a suicide note. Uh, what rights and responsibilities do free and open societies have to protect themselves from those within them that would use their freedoms to actively reject their core values or perhaps even violence? It depends on uh, how active rejection it is. 
And when it comes to violence, there's no intellectual, no philosophic problem. Uh, the state has a monopoly on violence, period, on legitimate violence. Uh, clearly, it seems to me, illiberal ideas have given rise to astonishing sympathy among people who should know better yes. for the predatory sadism of Hamas. Yes. And the idea is this. It, the idea is that we should all look at society not as composed of individuals but of groups. Yes. And the groups are either oppressive, oppressors, or the oppressed. Once you reduce the world to this simple binary, you're on the way to extremism because that gives people the ability to say, ah, okay, well, the Palestinians are oppressed, the Israelis are the oppressors, therefore, uh, the oppressed can do no wrong and certainly no wrong to the oppressors. I want to stay, sir, on, on the subject of uh, groups and individuals. Uh, the rise of so-called wokeism, which seeks to elevate group identities based on immutable characteristics such as race, gender and sexuality is, as you wrote last month, incompatible with liberalism's emphasis on the individual. How should liberals broadly define confront this anti-individualist trend? How do we restore the principle of blindness when it comes to one's gender, skin pigmentation, or sexual preferences? The way to do it is, first of all, to say there's an obvious positive case for treating individuals as what they are, individuals, not subsuming identities into uh, you use the term immutable. Well, there was a time when Marxists said class was immutable. If you were in the proletariat, that defined you. Well, it doesn't. Uh, and it wasn't immutable. I mean, the, the, the proletariat now has a two-car garage. <laughs> so it's different. Um, then there's the, the negative. And that is that we, we, we understand society goes from identity quickly into tribalism. And tribalism, as the name really connotes, has a kind of primitivism to it. Uh, you don't have to think anymore. You just get your agenda, you get your life's goals, you get your identity from this group membership. And inferentially, you are in, you're born into opposition to rival groups. And life becomes a zero-sum scramble for advantage of one group over the other. One of the most difficult parts to understand about uh, so-called post-liberal conservatives is the notion that somehow, if they abandoned liberalism and competed for political power, they could tilt the levers of the state in the direction of whatever represents their moral assumptions, as if there's a silent majority of Catholic integralists out there. Setting aside the normative problems with this vision, what about the basic politics? As a self-evident minority persuasion, isn't their self-interest rooted in the protections of liberalism? One would think so, because unless they've, they have decided that the next election that they propose to win is going to be the last election. Mm -hmm. Because there is, with almost metronomic regularity, an oscillation of power in a healthy society. Uh, which means that the rules that you write supposedly to your advantage are going to advantage the next regime that comes in, and there's always going to be a next regime. One of your most contrarian views is about the commonly held assumption that political polarization is bad. Uh, why are those who worry about polarization wrong? And why do you think political arguments, even and perhaps especially fundamental ones, are healthy? Well, polarization uh, is a way of talking about partisanship. Let's start first with partisanship. Partisanship's healthy. Uh, we have different views. 
uh, and people with more or less similar views cluster, and we call those political parties. And we have found that political parties are necessary to give weight and direction and stability to political competition. Uh, when the, the U.S. Constitution was written in 1787 and ratified in 1789, the framers of it didn't anticipate and didn't desire political parties. A decade later, we had political parties. They just filled a vacuum. You had to have them. Federalists, uh, Hamilton's Federalists and Jefferson's uh, Republicans. So partisanship is, is healthy. And partisanship implies some polarities, some polarization. What is not healthy, obviously, is when uh, polarization makes uh, enemies out of adversaries. And when the idea of splitting the difference is unacceptable. Almost all issues in public life are issues of splittable differences. We used to say until actually this year, the paradigmatic unsplittable difference was about abortion. Well, it turns out not so much. Today, Chris Sununu, the uh, Republican governor of New Hampshire, says, I'm pro-choice and I'm for a 15-week limit. Glenn Youngkin, the pro-life governor of Virginia, says, I'm pro-life and I'm for a 15-week limit. This is about where European nations have settled on this, a kind of commonsensical, if it looks like a baby, it's a baby, and it begins to look like a baby, and one of the reasons the abortion uh, debate has changed are better sonograms. Yes. These wonderful machines from Siemens and General Electric, people say, okay, that's a baby, and that's not a baby. Uh, it, it may not satisfy the the theologians or the philosophers, but common sense sometimes has its claims. That's a good segue, sir, to my next question. Um, you've spoken and written beautifully over the years about your son, John, uh, who has Down syndrome. Uh, we're living in a moment in which it's shockingly accepted in mainstream discourse and increasingly in public policy that people like him should be eliminated from the planet. Canada has the world's most permissive euthanasia policy that's been criticized by persons with disabilities and groups who speak for them. Uh, let me ask you a two-part question, sir. First, as a non-religious believer, where does your commitment to the sanctity of life find its origins? And second, what do you think about this ghoulish trend to treat people with disabilities as essentially dispensable? Yes, I mean, Hitler called them useless eaters. Iceland, dear little Iceland, is bragging that it's almost down to one or two Down syndrome people. Hooray for them. Um, where, where this decision usually occurs is when amniocentesis uh, in, uh, uh, by a, a couple expecting a baby, discover that their, their child has this genetic problem, which is easily discerned. And uh, there is social pressure, there is medical pressure, and there is this the pressure of anxiety and uncertainty that leads them to want to terminate the pregnancy. When my son John was born in 1972... He was born in Georgetown Hospital, a uh, Catholic university hospital. And the first person we saw was the hospital geneticist, who was a Jesuit priest, who came into the room and said, the first question you have to answer, are you going to take him home? And I said, well, yes, I thought that's what people did with their babies. Uh, and I then rather ferociously said that institutionalizing John is not discussable, so we just move on. Uh, there was a lot of misinformation at that time, never be toilet trained, never speak, et cetera, et cetera. The life expectancy of a, of a Down syndrome child in 1972 was 20 years, largely because they were not stimulated, they were warehoused, and they withered away. 
John's 51. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, sir, um, but I believe you, you presently have another child in Hong Kong, and you've written and talked about the Chinese threat to Hong Kong in particular and the world more generally. As someone who's generally a free trader, uh, what do you think of the framing of a new Cold War? And what kinds of exceptions or different treatments should we apply to our economic relationship with China? Well, there are strategic concerns, uh, certain goods and services that are can truly be said to be strategic and to implicate national security. Um, but those tend to be defined broadly to confer favors. I remember a few years ago, Macron in France decided that the Danon, I think it's a Danon yogurt, was a vital national industry. Uh, so you see what what nonsense can uh, slip in under the in the tent under the, under these rubrics. But uh, I think we're in a Cold War, but it's a Cold War very different than the one with Russia because Russia, frankly, still to this day has a hunter gatherer economy. They extract oil, they extract uh, caviar from sturgeons, and that's about it. Name it besides vodka and caviar. Name a consumer good from the Soviet Union you'd want to buy. The answer is there are none. China is woven deeply into the world economic system. Now, the, the hope had been that by being woven in with a thousand threads of commitments, China would become like Gulliver among the Lilliputians, tied down. I don't think that's working, but it's too soon to give up on that because China has to understand uh, what chaos would result, not just abroad, but in China if they were cut off from the international system. On the other hand, uh, I mean, China knows that it simply cannot do without Taiwan's uh, ch chips industry, microprocessors. So we don't know the answer yet as to how much free trade will, will tranquilize. It's an old argument from Adam Smith on that, that uh, when goods cross borders, armies don't cross borders. Well, they do, but... Uh, Still, there's something to that argument. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. In the last couple of election cycles, you, in a high-profile way, ended your relationship with the Republican Party. Um, I'd be remiss, sir, if I didn't ask about um, the Republican presidential primary and the general state of Republican politics in America. What, in your mind, represents a path to the type of conservatism that you've manifested in your several decades as, a, as the dean of American conservative columnists? Well, um, <laughs> what we're witnessing in the American presidential politics as 2024 approaches is a colossal failure of the political market, by which I mean there's a huge demand 
and no supply coming forth. Mm. The demand is for someone other than Biden and the Democrats and someone other than Trump. Mm. Uh, but the, the process is simply unresponsive, and I don't know how to fix it. That's for another podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but there certainly are traditional Reagan-like limited government fiscally responsible conservatives. Tim Scott is one. I should say at this point that my wife is a, a senior member of the Tim Scott uh, campaign. She's who, who, who she's encouraged to consider stepping out of the She's in South Carolina with him as we speak. Um, yes, I wrote a column saying that Scott ought to withdraw with a note on my column that Mrs. Will disagrees with this column. Uh, but uh, Nikki Haley's another. Uh, Chris Christie's probably an is, is another. So they're out there. Uh, there are too many of them, as a matter of fact. If, if they would all, it seems to me that when the voter in Republican nominating events doesn't see Trump in a kind of clutter of other candidates, but sees Trump in one other person, yes. when it's a binary choice, um, this may be wishful thinking on my part, but I think that they will find, they will say, ah, there's a real choice this year. And we don't have to do this again. We don't have to go back into the chaos and the vulgarity and the coarseness and the lying and the recklessness. So um, I think it's still doable. If you had to bet your net worth today, you'd, you'd uh, grit your teeth and bet on Trump, but you don't. Uh, sir, I previously had on our podcast Overick Roy, who was one of the leading figures behind um, building support for the Freedom Conservative Statement, of which you were one of the signatories. I want to put a question to you that I put to him. As a, a so-called freedom conservative, looking back uh, on the past, say, quarter century or so, where do you think freedom conservatives ought to acknowledge uh, failures or mistakes? I, I suppose that some might say, I'm not sure I would, but some might say that but the stress on freedom and particularly free trade uh, resulted in an unequal distribution of benefits and burdens. And that uh, the steel industry in western Pennsylvania, for example, is just gone, decimated by, by trade, and not enough was done to give them geographical as well as social mobility. Americans used to get up and move when things... I don't know if you remember in Steinbeck's Great Depression novel, The Grapes of Wrath, when the Dust Bowl and the Depression were the one-two punch that hit the Joad family in Oklahoma, they got up and moved. They went to Southern California. Lucky them. They got there just in time to work in the shipyards and aerospace uh, industries of the Second World War. Uh, so more could have been done to mitigate this. And had more been done, uh, we wouldn't have this, re this protectionist reaction. There's one other thing, however. I don't think that what motivates a lot of the Trump voters is material deprivation. I think it's status deprivation. I think they feel not respected. They feel as though they now live in a society in which a college degree, and only one third of Americans have a college degree, but a college degree is a passport to respectability. And that's poisonous. And I'm glad to see there's a pushback on that. Various states, Pennsylvania, for example, most recently said we're no longer going to require a college degree for a great many uh, of our executive positions. Walmart has now said the same thing, and that's extremely healthy. Um, 
you've joked at various times uh, that you're a gloomy conservative, uh, but a lot of your writing in general, and your last two books in particular, convey an inherent optimism about America's institutions, its economic vitality, and its relative civic health. Why are you ultimately optimistic about America's future, and what signs should the rest of us look for to prove that you're ultimately right? Well, no one ever got rich betting against the United States. Uh, The United States has a continental market, has many of the greatest research universities in the world, uh, an educated, industrious population. Uh, It's really hard to stop Americans from creating wealth. The government does its damnedest, but not even it can stop wealth creation. So uh, that's the first reason. Uh, The second is the fecundity of freedom. I mean, my goodness, what we keep coming up with. Um, And uh, I I think the substratum of America, which is about 90% of America, beneath the people who watch Fox News and people who watch MSNBC and the, the academic Leninists, rampaging on campuses. That's one group, but they're a tiny sliver of our, of our country. Uh, the vast majority of Americans are getting on with life, washing the car, raising children, raking leaves, cleaning the gutters, and giving not a thought to the political hysterias. Uh, let me ask you a penultimate question. We're speaking a, a couple of hours before your participation in a monk debate here in Toronto about... Uh, cast classical liberalism. Why don't you outline a bit um, the the scope and nature of your argument? Well, you've heard a bit of it already. Uh, Some people in politics say we should aim for the best and pursue it. Uh, Classic liberals say, let's discern the worst and avoid it. And one way you do that, the topic tonight is liberalism gets the big questions right. Liberalism gets the big questions right in part by not addressing the big questions. What religion is true? Should we establish religion? What is virtue? How do we drive people into virtue? No, no. My uh, partner in the debate tonight, Jacob Rees-Mogg, a member of the British Conservative Party, is a devout Catholic. I am, as I've described myself, an amiable, low-voltage atheist. Doesn't matter. In a liberal society, he goes his way and I go mine because the government is neutral about important life choices. Uh, That's a good part of my argument. Um, Sir, I said that was my penultimate question before I come to a baseball question at the end. But may I I slide one in just in response to those observations? Um, I share your, your views about liberalism and indeed the responsibility of North American conservatives to protect and conserve our liberal inheritance. Um, but in the current moment, I'm reminded of Irving Kristol's book, Two Cheers for Capitalism. Um, there's a sense, it seems to me, particularly amongst young people, that these other ideologies on the left and the right are attractive because they aim to, or they purport to answer first things, um, that they are totalizing ideologies. So how can liberalism confront um, and, and ultimately prevail over these other uh, worldviews that, um, that have resonance precisely because they don't, they don't claim to be neutral. They claim to answer uh, these fundamental questions. A lot of people, and particularly young people, are drawn to away from liberalism because liberalism is boring. Yes. 
Liberalism is pedestrian. Yes. Liberalism doesn't claim to be on the right side of history. Yes. Liberalism indeed says history doesn't have a side and it doesn't take sides. So liberalism isn't exciting. The way you refute that is, is give them a course on the history of the 20th century. It was a blood-soaked century precisely because we had exciting politics. We were going to pr produce new Soviet man, new German man, all kinds of glittering things. When in the 20th century, in the 30s particularly, when Stalin was imposing terror on his country, a lot of his Western apologists said, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. To which Orwell's withering reply was, where's the omelet? The omelet is always tomorrow, and tomorrow is always a day away. I, I promised a final question about baseball. Um, in the Blue Jays elimination game against the Minnesota Twins last month, starting pitcher Jose Barreros was pulled after just three innings, even though he was pitching a gem. It's largely assumed that the decision to replace him was strictly informed by analytics. What do you think about the idea that managers are losing decision-making abilities to analytics-heavy front offices? Are we losing managerial judgment in favor of textbook probability? Uh, there's some of that, and it varies in 30 different flavors by the 30 different teams. Some teams are, are more than others. When you have an old-school manager like uh, Bochy of the Rangers or uh, uh, Buck Showalter of the Mets or, uh, well, those guys who've been around a long, long time, Dusty Baker of the Astros, they know how to use the analytic. I mean, nothing wrong with analytic. That's just a, a puffed-up word for information, and we're all for information. Um, I think you're going to see Major League Baseball is going to consider l cutting down the number of permissible pitchers on the Major League rosters in order to get back to starting pitchers being exciting. It used to be. When Koufax pitched against Marichal, Maddox against Carlton, Gibson against Carlton, Maddox against Pedro Martinez, yes. that was destination baseball. Uh, now when we have this wretched statistic, a quality start, and if someone goes five innings, they say, wow, uh, we've got to get over that. Sir, I want to thank you for joining me for an episode of Hub Dialogues. It's been a, a great honor and pleasure to speak with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>